Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Born of solid New England stock in a developing land, she hit the books early, became a mother by a founding father, lived a life of loyalty, sacrifice, letter writing, and patriotic duty on her way to becoming the second lady first, the first lady second, and the mother of the sixth president of the United States. The end. Let's talk about Abigail Adams. She was born in 1744. In that year, French King Louis XV, Grandpa King, declared war on England. This was nine years before our friend Marie Antoinette was even born. That year, Benjamin Franklin invented the cast iron stove and marketed it. The first golf club, the organization, not the equipment, was formed in Scotland to hold tournaments for the game, which was invented in the early 1400s. A Little Pretty Pocketbook is first printed in England by John Newberry, who will later be the Newberry Award for Children's Literature, will be named after him. This is book is considered the first children's book, and it was simple rhymes for each letter of the alphabet. By the end of Abigail's life, the United States would be formed. At her death, James Monroe would be president. Abigail Adams was born in 1744 to William and Elizabeth Quincy Smith in Weymouth, Massachusetts. She was the second of four children, three girls and a boy. Other was a Congregationalist minister, which was a very highly respected position in society. Mm -hmm. He was considered a, a man of reason by right. pretty much all sides of every political or religious spectrum. Right. <laughs> yeah, he had some charm. This guy had yeah. some charm. Her mother, Abigail's mother, came from an established political family, Abigail Adams's grandfather, whose name was John Quincy, a name that will keep popping up. Um, he was also in politics, and he was the speaker for the Massachusetts Assembly for 40 years. So you see the political thread runs very deep, very deep in that family. It's in their blood. And also, her cousin became the wife of John Hancock. The so, thing that gets me is that everybody has the same name. You know, this is the 1700s. There's more names out there. They're honoring people. I realize yeah. that family members, I, I understand their tradition, but. Just wait till we get to the Tudor era. Oh, and, I know. And every woman's named Anne, Catherine, <laughs> Elizabeth, or Jane. Have to have some code names for that one. And Abigail was actually the third cousin to John Adams. So they are all related with all the same names. So Abigail was raised similar to many girls of the 1740s and 1750s. They were taught to read and write and do sums. That was considered very important to fit them for their household work. They were all raised and in the full expectation that they would be mistresses of households and mothers of children. And that level of education was considered very essential. Mm -hmm. Now, that level of education was often completed at age eight. So, <laughs> yeah. so you're looking at that level, you know, second, third grade level of math and reading and right. spelling and writing. Right. For most girls. She was actually very uh, self-motivated and, and studied quite. She studied at home. She didn't go to formal schooling and she's very intelligent, read all types of literature, classics, um, ancient history, law. Her father, I have to give him some credit here. Her father thought that his daughters should have access to his very extensive library. Mm -hmm. And he had no problem, although his wife did, he had no problem with the girls availing themselves of this library. He, he actually taught his daughters um, about literature and theology and history. Very unusual for the time. And one of the sources I read mentioned the mother just rolling her eyes at this. Like, when are they ever going to need this? Uh -huh. <laughs> she was not on board, yeah. but her husband said to do it. So that's what she happened. Did it. So and rolled her eyes and rolled her eyes. Yeah. Not that we would ever 
do something like that. What our husbands say. <laughs> so, um, so Abigail Adams did get a bit more, edu- quite a bit more education than most girls of her time, and so did her sisters. They were very well-read women. Now, Puritan parents believed in children learning the value of work early. And this is just like Montessori, but not to push them. So, small children were extremely indulged. Mm-hmm. And then as they realized, looking around, that grown-ups didn't get treated this way, they were supposed to naturally go into being valuable members of the household. So that's You have your your time of indulgence and then your time of awakening to realize that this is not the norm and, oh, let me fit into the norm. Abigail Adams, as a child, was pretty argumentative, and she always wanted to get the last word when she was talking to people. (laughs) And one of the friends of her father's actually said, Nabby, and that was her little nickname, Nabby, not Abby, Nabby. He said, Nabby, you will either be a very good woman or else a very bad one. (laughs) So that's really true. Yeah. I think. I guess you could spunky. She was very spunky. But um, as a teen, John Adams comes to visit with her. Now she knows him. Um, with his friend who's engaged to her sister, her sister Mary. John is actually coming off a marital near miss with another woman, but he is attracted to Abigail because she is spunky. <laughs> For a word that I don't like to use, let's use it again. Um, gradually, no, Richard Cranch is the name of his right. friend that ended up marrying her sister Mary. Um, and Richard actually used to admire these sisters and their minds, and he would bring Nabby books. You know, mm-hmm. that she had requested about reading French. She was teaching herself French. It was just amazing. So he admired that, and he would bring her books. And after a while, his friend, who came on every courting expedition, which mm-hmm. seems totally bizarro, like, dude, yeah, a, why do you need yeah. a friend with you? That's a third wheel. Just do it, man. Just court. Don't yeah. have to bring, oh, whatever. But so... Man up. I know. So he brings this guy who's always the third wheel, and eventually John starts bringing her books, too. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was pretty cool. So, and, and he had been quoted as saying that he admires a fine mind wherever he could find it. The indicator of their intellectual compatibility um, from early on. Yeah. Now, her parents considered her too young to marry, even though the kind of, the, the average age of marriage about this time seemed to be 22. Mm-hmm. Although there were examples from 14. Right. And that's, I, I found that interesting that it's 22 is that, because you think, oh, back in those days, colonial mm-hmm. days, they married early because they're going to die early, you know. But that's just not no, as common not, as I thought it was. Average, yeah, that's mm-hmm. that did surprise me. So, um, she was almost twenty and married John Adams, John, and she, they're married by her father, who gives a rather interesting um, speech during her during the wedding. It's not the traditional bless this couple and the traditional readings. Um, do you do you remember what it was? <laughs> I don't, but I will link. I will. I promise, link you up. It was something to do. He had this thing where he would always um, reference his daughter's name or the husband's name mm-hmm. in the sermon. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It was was very sketchy. Well, we will put it in the show notes, but it was just like kind of almost like showing a sense of humor. Yeah. And and he was telling the congregation that they were approving, that they approved of the marriage. Even though he's only a country lawyer just starting off Mm -hmm. and they would have preferred her to marry a more established man. Right. And he wasn't Harvard educated, but at the time... You went to Harvard and you became a minister and he became a lawyer. <laughs> now, one thing that I thought was kind of clever or interesting about their courtship is, you know, you always think of the olden days, like a woman can't be seen with a man without a husband. Mm-hmm. Or a, now that's later on. They were given free reign mm-hmm. to roam the countryside. They went on an overnight trip I once know. together yes, I, yes. before they were married. 
She went to watch him at a trial. So I think that's pretty interesting. The level of trust was a lot higher than... And they talk, there's talk about how they would snuggle under blankets and how in his letters to her, he referenced mm-hmm. that. And, and their letters. <laughs> yeah, they wrote so many letters. And there was one, um, there was one in particular that I thought was quite interesting about how they had been, he had been delayed somewhere mm-hmm. uh, of seeing her. And he wrote, let's paraphrase this because I don't remember the exact wording, but it was something about like, well, that's good because you know how magnet and metal is. It would probably be bad if I saw you right now. It's probably good that we had a little bit of a delay. <laughs> so there was some sauce, some flirting going on. All the letters are out there. Well, not all of them, but a great majority of them. And um, and a lot of them, they use pen names. She was Diana. She was Diana at this young period of time, and he was Lysander. Mm-hmm. And they would use these code words and something about it. And they had a whole little clique of people that all did the same thing. Right. And um, it kind of gave them the freedom to be a little more. It's like the anonymous on your internet. And right. they, they were very open and free with their letters in a right. way that they might not have been had their actual name been on the letter. Right, right. That's true. Yeah. I, I, I thought that was very interesting and sort of interesting, very human side of their courtship because you don't really think, you think of it as founding fathers, war, politics, and all that seriousness. They were just a young couple in love. And he actually wasn't supposed to marry. He was, he was encouraged to not be getting married at this time in his career to concentrate on learning the law but he just he bucked it twice he had the previous relationship and then with i believe one of abigail's cousins named hannah quincy yes (laughs) quincy that's right the knot tightens on all of the connections they got married and moved not too far away um to a, a town called braintree massachusetts which still exists but the place where they went is now called quincy right not quincy and it the Quincy. All of you Massachusetts people, stand up. Thank you. Um, she, uh, they moved to the house that he had gotten from his father right next to the house that he was born in. It was uh, just a, you know, traditional salt box style home and it's right next door and it still is. And you can still visit it. So they um, start having the babies right away. In fact, eight and a half months after the marriage. <gasps> they didn't have any problem in this area. So. <laughs> That's all I'm saying about that. That's right. So, so their first child is a little girl named Abigail. Let's get really creative. There was an eye roll in there. The second child was named John Quincy. Interesting. Okay, so we've gotten rid of that. So now there's no more juniors. That's right. Yeah, you can't name them after. So you need to be creative. They have their third child, whose name is Susanna, but she dies uh, very early in life. And then Charles, and then Thomas Boylston, and finally Elizabeth, who was stillborn all within 12 years. Yeah, all the kids are um, like off years. So there'll be like a three, a five, a seven, and a nine. Mm -hmm. At one point, she had a six, a four, a two, and a zero all at the same time. Okay, I can't imagine having that, but... By herself, by the way, which we'll get into a little bit later. That's right. And I I just want to throw this non sequitur in here. She was little. She was five foot one, uh, brown hair and brown eyes. We'll we'll put obviously put up pictures of her, but quite honestly, there's not a lot out there. The ones that we're gonna put up are the ones that you're gonna see everywhere. There's not a lot of portraits that were painted of her. Mm-hmm. There's a portrait that's painted of her early in early in their marriage. They had gone off on a on a trip and they had their portraits painted together and not together, separate portraits, but at the same sitting or same time period. I guess it was a fashion of the day to have these portraits as souvenirs. And um hers is 
it shows life in her eyes and she's she looks very inquisitive and beautiful a beautiful woman and he looks dowdy you know and just frumpy and just the detail isn't isn't in his portrait as much as it is in hers so that was that's interesting but again that's a portrait that you'd see anywhere if you search for Abigail Adams. There's not a lot. I'm so bummed. I forgot to mention this earlier before we talked about them getting married, but there's there's a couple things I was going to talk about. Right before they got married, John decided that since smallpox was running rampant through oh. Boston, he was going to be inoculated. <sighs> and that's the six-week period of... The, right before their wedding. Right before their wedding, he decides it's it's too dangerous. Smallpox, I mean, as you know from the Marie Antoinette podcast, is really, I mean, it is stalking Europe, and it has made it to, you know, and it is stalking America. Mm-hmm. And it is very serious. It's nothing to play with. Um, the whole thing requires about six weeks of seclusion in which they give you mercury pills. They make you fast, all of which seems destined to make you weak before they do this And they, they inoculate you. I believe you, there was a, the germs of the smallpox, the live virus on a string that they run through your... Yeah, or um, a pine needle or something. They, like, stick it on a pine needle and then ram it into your vein. And there's a – in the 2008 HBO uh, miniseries, there is a scene in there where she has the family inoculated, and it is – it's a stomach turner. Yeah, it's very it's very horrible um, to think about. That that does happen a little bit later. She's actually forced to make that decision because John's not home. Right. So anyway, um, he writes her these letters. He has a friend with him. They're doing this together. And he writes this very comical letter about how hilarious it is to see two guys alternately vomiting and laughing. <laughs> that one of them will just projectile vomit the other one laughs then they'll have this poo problem and the other one laughs and he's like you've never seen the like of such comedy <laughs> and i'm like i've never hoped to see the i like know of that's that. a, there's a, yeah, i'll just leave that in the letters <laughs> so i don't even like but those that's guys. just so two guys i mean we think founding father yeah. and all but it's just two guys it's like can you see two frat brothers just dude, vomiting vomit yeah okay you go dude you know i'm sure it was all that um, mercury in the pills oh. weren't helping. Oh, no. Oh, the um, medicine of the day. Was... And then right before they got married, after all this vomiting and laughing, <laughs> Abigail got sick, so sick she couldn't come to the new house to see about setting up the house. And so he wrote her this thing about, I've been to see the girl. The girl meaning the person he had intended to hire as a servant. And she wrote back this very tart response, like, how, how what business do you have going to see girls <laughs> and stuff? So yeah. it's just, they're so cute. They are, yeah. You just don't see that from the portraits. No, you don't see it from, and you don't hear about it from, you know, mm. typical history. That's of, right. Of the, the flirtatious comfort that they had mm-hmm. with each other before they were even married. You know, you think at that time, you know, people getting married because they had to was expected of them. But these people wanted to get married. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was very much a very modern type of relationship in that we want to spend our lives together. We are equals. And I, I did admire that about their, their, cu- their coupling. <laughs> Oops, that's a bad word. <laughs> so, um, so John was concentrating on building his career because he knew um, now that he had one child that hit, you know, that they will only increase, you know, his children. And so he alternated his time between Boston and Braintree, which was, you know, not such a big commute now as it Braintree is practically the center. Right, if you of live town. in Braintree, you could yeah. work in Boston. Yeah, very easily. Yeah, back then it was a long. A bit of a long journey. So um, Abigail took to housekeeping, as she's expected to do. But the married woman's responsibilities in the 1700s. Okay, cooking, yes. Sewing, tending the garden, caring for the livestock um, was the woman's response. Mm-hmm. I mean, what did the boys do exactly? I don't know. <laughs> and also writing How away. How wigs? <laughs> writing away to Boston for things. Like, there was no store in town. 
at all. Mm -mm. So anytime she wanted anything, she would send a letter to someone that lived in Boston to get, I mean, anything. Meat, fish, cornmeal, sugar, molasses, tea, spices, and dry goods. A lot of women in the country might weave their own cloth. Mm -hmm. And Abigail knew how to do that because that's what one did. You learned how to do that. But she disapproved of the the quality of the cloth. And so she Mm -hmm. sent away to fancy dry goods stores to make their things. And then candles. Also, she could make candles. But why make messy old stinky candles when you could just get them from Boston? Right. So she was lucky enough to not only have enough income to do that, Mm -hmm. but to live close enough to get it quickly. Right. Right. But no self-respecting married woman of the time would let servants do everything for her. Mm-hmm. This is in contrast to the generation just right after where it's like, none of my daughters ever set foot in the kitchen. Right. Well, nowadays, if you didn't know how to do everything better than your servants, mm-hmm. you were failing. Right. You know, you have a hundred slaves in the house, but you better know how to get down on your knees and scrub that That's floor. What, right. You have to do everything. Yeah. You know, you have to know how to do it before you can expect other people. I think that's very... I think it's very respectful. And also, they got to stay in bed for three weeks after having a baby. And everyone descended upon you and did all your housework and your livestock work for you. (sighs) Three weeks. You worked to get up. Three weeks. So maybe the past wasn't all bad. I know. <laughs> Certainly had its benefit. I, I don't know about that list of chores. That would no, put that me would... to bed for three weeks if I did it for one. Why don't we just take a break now? Yep. And we'll come back and we'll talk about what's going on in, in their world right now. Which is a lot. Welcome back. We're back. Um, now we need to talk about some things re- related to the birth of our nation, really, that mm-hmm. affect Abigail's life. And in this way, there's really no way to separate her husband's no. story from her story, really. Or the country's. Or the country's point. story. A lot of what she goes through here is just part of the birth pangs of our nation. Right, right. You can't talk, you can't not talk about it. So let's talk about it. The Stamp Act. Could it be drier? Could it be drier to talk about the Stamp Act? Oh, it's very dry. Yes, it's important. So here's the beginning, and here's how it affects Abigail Adams personally. The Stamp Act was kind of a slap in the face from the British to the colonists. And they determined that the colonists were going to have to pay for all those soldiers. That are watching them. That are watching the colonists. The British soldiers who are watching the colonists. So it seemed like an academic thing to place some kind of tax on what? So what they did was they made it so that every time you used a piece of paper for anything, it had to have an official seal on it to determine that you had paid an additional tax. I'm talking everything. Playing cards, bill of lading, stationery, legal documents, diplomas from colleges, any any piece of paper Paper. you used at all. There was a distributor of stamps to be elected by the people. They thought that would help a lot. Right. You pick the guy that's going (laughs) to bill you of all this money. You pick that guy. Yeah, pick the guy you're going to hate. Yeah. And so, you know, for the last 20 years or so, Britain was trying to crank down on the colonists. They felt like they were getting a little bit free. So there were taxes on quite a lot of consumer goods. And that was sucky, but acceptable. But this really pushed them over the edge, pushed them over the edge. And so that's when this whole riot broke out. This mob of young men raced through the town and went to the guys, the stamp distributor's Mm -hmm. house, Mm -hmm. broke all his windows, hung him in effigy, decided that wasn't enough, cut it down, cut the head off, burnt the head. It was like, we get it. You don't like the stamp act. And really, this was kind of, um, Boston began... Here's the short version. Boston, at this point, then began to be the place where people would start grumbling about the British in 
you know, the coffee houses. Mm-hmm. And, and John Adams was always down with the boys grumbling. And right. he became a prominent grumbler. <laughs> Too bad you couldn't be paid for being but, a grumbler. But only in the coffee house circuit. But what this did to John Adams's business is kind of key to what happens to Abigail Adams. Because right. John Adams' business, which was mostly doing with shipping and the legal ramifications of things to do with shipping, kind of ground to a halt as people refused to pay the stamp tax. Right. No pieces of paper meant the ships had no bills of lading, mm-hmm. meant that there was any dispute, there couldn't come to court. Court stopped. Legal things stopped. And so John Adams was forced to kind of go afield to find more income. And right. that began the long series of absences. Of separation between Abigail and John as he toured um, the colonies looking for work. Mm-hmm. You know, cases that he that he could that he could try, and because it wasn't happening for him in Boston. They had a, a conversation about now. Let's throw out this date. It's 1768. So it's you know we're looking at about eight years before the big one. John and Abigail had a conversation right now. Are you in this for the glory? Because he had talked about getting into some politics. Are you in it for the glory or are you in this for the family? And his guilt over leaving his family for so long really started now. But you know what won out is country. Country. And his career mm-hmm. won out. And it really, from this point, his family always took second place. <sighs> yes. You don't agree? But I, no, I totally agree. But I, I kind of liken all of his absences to military families. It's for the greater good. And it's for the for your country and, you know, patriotism. And he saw a need and he saw a better way for us. So, yeah, he kind of threw his family under a bus. I, I do agree, but I agree with a soft heart. Well, they did. He moved her to Boston, and she and the three children at the time mm-hmm. moved to Boston, and it really was better for Abigail. He was gone a lot, but you know what? She could walk and see her friends. Right. They could call upon her. Their children could visit. Really, I guess that would be like, like to use your analogy, it would be like moving from an apartment way off base to all of a sudden she moves on base, and there's all mm-hmm. kinds of women who have the same situation, same situation she does. Right. So she really, really did like Boston and had two months of the most amazing, comfortable, happy existence in Mm -hmm. Boston until the British decided they were going to go ahead and put some troops right in the middle of Boston. Yeah. Because they had, they had made these rules now all of a sudden that yes, British soldiers could be quartered in people's houses. How about that? And all these things called the coercive acts that Mm -hmm. really, I mean, it was just destined to break the spirit of Boston. Right. And unfortunately for Abigail, the place chosen for their drills was right in front of her house. Bad. So can you imagine, here you are with three small children, your husband is gone pretty much all the time. And you're living a life of, you know, happiness. And then here's Suddenly. all these soldiers fully armed. <laughs> Even if they're your own soldiers, I'm talking about angry young men fully armed parading in front of your house is not a comfortable no. existence. No. Especially when you know your husband is actively grumbling against these guys and is probably on a list. Right. So th- it was just not a good no. Place to be. Yeah, the beginning of the awkward age, I guess. John's high profile um, court cases, he was getting some he was mm-hmm. getting some prominence as a good lawyer. His high um, court cases brought great visitors to the house. Sam Adams. Sam Adams. Got a beer. <laughs> so Sam Adams not only known for beer, but also I like to call him Mr. Resistance. Yes. Because he you know, he he was one of the ones that I think goaded John Adams in into some you know, radical talk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then John Hancock was a wealthy merchant and might I add smuggler mm. which was pretty respectable for an American because if you didn't want to pay the tax on tea, who are you gonna call? Yeah. You're gonna pay you're gonna call tea John. Tea busters. Yeah. 
T-Busters. <laughs> so, um, so John Hancock felt very grateful because John Adams kept getting him off of, mm-hmm. of these charges. So, you know, that's a good friend to have, too. Yeah. Mr. Big Signature and Mr. Resistance. So that's good. So unfortunately, though, um, during this time period when the troops were parading outside the house, Abigail Adams had something far direr to worry about because this is when her little tiny daughter, Susanna, died. Mm, sad. And as much as, you know, from this, we just hear, oh, her son died, her husband died. Right. Whatever. It's a footnote. It's just a footnote, but really it was heartbreaking as it would be to anybody. Expecting it doesn't make it... No, and, and living in the times where it happens a lot doesn't make it any easier. No. no. So um, in 1770, right when all this was happening, what happens? All hell breaks loose in town. This is the year of what came to be known as the Boston Massacre. And this is what really propelled John into politics. So street gangs of dudes started to taunt the British soldiers, who tried to remain professional for a little while. Right. But there's only so much you can take from Egypt throwing snowballs at you. Right. Or nice. Yeah. And then clubs. And your fancy red coat. Right. (laughs) Because you're the authority figures. And who are they? They're nobody. So, of course, young men, even when they're intending to be professional, start losing their temper on both sides. And um, and so, inevitably, they crack, and shots get fired. Nobody knows. Did the did the captain really call? Shots fired. Mm-hmm. Did they really call fire? Did something just happen? Was there a noise? You know what? You never know in a mob. Mm-hmm. You just never know. No. Shots were fired. Eventually, five people died, and that was called the Boston Massacre, because really, I guess if you think about it, your own army has fired upon its own people. people. The people they're protecting. And if you look at the pic- like the paintings or the woodcuts, thank you, of the time, it, I mean, they just show the soldiers lined up firing into a crowd, like the the crowd is doing nothing. But um, yeah, there was there was definitely some provocation yeah. on both sides. Although you know, snowball doesn't equal bullet, but still. Now, none of the Tory, that's the royalists, basically the people who wanted to stay with Britain, are called Tories at this time. None of the Tory lawyers would take the case of the captain and his men because they were just afraid of getting, you know, their effigies head cut off. Right. In fact, their real heads cut off. They were not willing to take it. Right. They came to John Adams to defend these men, and he, using his principles, it was kind of a testament to his reputation mm-hmm. that this, rather than decreasing his reputation, the fact that he took these guys' case mm-hmm. to defend them really made him a prominent political player right. in society. Right. And, and one of, of morals, and mm-hmm. which he successfully defended them. He did. He successfully defended them, although um, a couple of them got branded on the thumb, which seems like really small punishment for so shooting he, someone. But, yeah. but basically, yeah, he defended them successfully and that began his um, his career in politics and he was asked to go to the continental congress mm-hmm. in 1770 which means going to philadelphia and leaving abigail and the children back in massachusetts and at this point he moves them back out to the farmstead out of boston you know here's the thing that i, I it does say that abigail Several of the sources I read said that Abigail supported his decision to go to the Continental Congress, mm-hmm. but it also says that he'd already made the decision and, in fact, had already made the arrangements and then told her, and she accepted his decision in floods of tears, which doesn't really sound like... like she's encouraging him to go. Mm-mm. Well, it's got to be heartbreaking. I mean, mm-hmm. even if you believe... Thunder! Yeah, that's... I can't control that. No. That will be going on. <laughs> There's nothing we can do. 
cool. Um, anyway, so even if she did believe in it, the the fact that honestly, well, I mean, it never occurred to him to talk to her first about it. I think he already accepted. Yeah, and I think she would have said yes anyway. But still, but she was heartbroken. Yeah, so she cried. Be gone. So I she would. cried. So um, at this point, he goes to the Continental Congress. He is officially marked as a traitor. He will now be officially mm-hmm. on the list for real as being. You know, he's now a legislator. Right. You're on the list now. The, the British list. Right. So yeah, now like there's that whole comedy before about how ooh, my husband's probably on a list for talking in the coffee house. Well, now you're... You're on a real list. You're on a real list yeah. now, my friend. What I thought was interesting about this period of time is that anti-British feeling was kind of more freely expressed by the women than by men. And I'm kind of thinking, using that disadvantage of, like, no one taking them that seriously, mm-hmm. you can say whatever you want. Oh, that is very interesting. Huh. Uh, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. she, she had a couple of friends with whom she corresponded at this time that were very anti-British in their writings. Catherine McCauley um, had written many, many anti-British, let's see, not anti-British necessarily, but anti-the way British treated their colonists. Right. Um, their friend Mercy Otis Warren also. And she admired them greatly for using their powers outside of their home and domestic spheres mm-hmm. to, um, you know, just get into the outside world. She really admired that. Yeah. And, so, and there's actually um, letters between her and mostly Mercy. They were pretty tight. Uh, Abigail really res- respected her for, for her use of language, you know, in their in mm-hmm. their letters. And, and I uh, I do want to talk about a, a website that, that's out there. It's called FamilyTales.org. And again, we'll put a link on our show notes. Abigail was a letter writer, as we've already discussed, and and she is throughout her whole life. But there are a bunch of her letters on the site, and you can just read them. They're not in the original pen, which is really difficult to read. I mean, it's cool to see, but it's they're all printed out for you. You can just read one letter after another. Um, some extremely important and um, and others of just mundane things between her and John. It's just very, it's a it's a pretty cool site, and, and I urge you to check it out. There's another book that I like called Dearest Friend, The mm-hmm. Letters of John uh, Adams and Abigail Adams. Mm-hmm. So if you prefer the dead trees, as <laughs> I, I do. Like, I do like some dead trees. I like the dead trees. If you prefer that method, that's also... Um, it's very good too. Her language is very, it's not very modern at all. It's, I don't want to say flowery, but it's colonial times. It's the time, it's language of the day and it's the language she spoke. And the spelling is quite amazingly yes. creative. Yes. My son goes to a Montessori school and in Montessori school, you learn, um, to spell phonetically mm-hmm. first just to get your confidence level up and so some of it's very like hey did you go to Montessori school because that is just as phonetic as can well, be well you compared the Montessori at the beginning yeah you, you had the type of education that she had it's probably just what's on my mind right well, now that but yes well <laughs> and that, that's not common right um in in public schools that are you know where my kids go that's not yeah you know there's spelling tests from a very early age ah there's no spelling tests <laughs> Thank goodness for Abigail Adams, because she would not have passed. No, that's right. (laughs) As a result of being left really to manage everything on her own for this period of time um, while he was gone in Philadelphia, she kind of began to question women's roles in society. Mm -hmm. And She was a single parent. She was raising the kids. The boys. I mean, the boys. I mean, she had one girl and three boys. You know, she was tending to the farm. She was handling her the family's finances, mm-hmm. you know, making investments and, and taking care of everything. Yeah, well, definitely. You know, John was busy. Well, and you know, the um, the education of her boys gave her a lot of stress because they, they reached an age 
where they should be going to school, but she disapproved of the school. She didn't think it was good enough, and so mm-hmm. she ended up sending her children from the farm back to their aunts for mm-hmm. to go to a better school. And so, really, her her kids were gone pretty early. At least the boys mm-hmm. went to a better place to to go to school. A Which little bit just early. gives them less hands to help around with the farming and. Yeah, and some of her tenants gave her some... The only time she ever was sad about a tenant or wished John was around... This is the this is telling that this is the only time she wished John had made a decision was this tenant farmer refused to leave when she needed the space for a refugee from the war that was mm-hmm. pregnant and he wouldn't give it up and she was really mad. And she felt <laughs> impotent, like she couldn't go yell at him or whatever. Right. That's the only time. <laughs> Otherwise, I think she was pretty... She didn't like handling the farm stuff at first, but no. she gradually got more confident, I think. Oh, absolutely. Well, she had to. And also... As a mother and a married woman, she had a certain status and respect in society. But as a woman, she knew she couldn't aspire to things. Mm -hmm. She couldn't go to school. She couldn't. She expressed some envy about one of her nephews that just got to go to Europe and roam around. And she did say, if I had been one of your sex, I would have been a roamer. Mm That, right. You know, she just knew that women just didn't do that. Couldn't couldn't live that type of lifestyle. <laughs> in addition to putting all the guilt on herself for the sole responsibility for the house and everything, um, the responsibility for the children settled heavily on her shoulders because she began to espouse with her friends this rationalist theory of parenting mm-hmm. that was fashionable. Okay. You know how theories come and go yes. of what one should do with the children. Um, and in the rationalist theory, um, you're not supposed to rely on punishment. You're supposed to just be a good example. Mm-hmm. And so the children are supposed <laughs> to look at you as their example of how to behave. I would fail. <laughs> <laughs> she used to meet with her friends, including some of these feminist type writers mm-hmm. that she approved of, but the main topic of conversation was the raising of the children. And how um, and the disadvantages of this, though, is that if the children turned out wrong, it was considered to be the mother's fault. Right. Wow. Talk about your heavy load of mommy guilt. And it's kind of, you know, I'm thinking that's kind of swinging around to be the same way now. But so the weight of the children's characters was placed squarely on the mother's shoulders, especially mm-hmm. as they got older. So just think about how much pressure that puts on you in addition to, you know, the cows or whatever. Especially when we discover what happens to mm-hmm. two of her children later in life. What started out with this Mercy Otis Warren correspondence is that she really admired how the older woman's children had turned out and mm-hmm. wanted to know. This is how they started to, you know, be really good friends. And like, how did you, like, how did you guide them to make them turn out this nice way? Right. I'd really like to follow well, I think she example. used that as an entry into yeah. into communicating with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Through that lady, she got introduced to Catherine McCauley, who was also an anti-British writer. Catherine McCauley's famous thing was um, the vigilance of virtuous people in the population is the only thing that restricts those in power from using their power inappropriately. Ooh. So does that sound familiar? That's what Catherine McCauley was writing. The only thing that's keeping government, which is after all, full of people with human nature, mm-hmm. whose human nature it is to seize more power. Right. Oh, Abigail Adams loved this. This is the good character of the population is the only thing keeping it together. So that's where she was coming. That's very interesting. So at this point, you know, you've got your Boston Tea Party situation, um, which is causing refugees to stream through the town. Uh, Past her house. Which is so funny to think about that, because really, it is so close to me. Mm-hmm. But it was safer to be in Braintree or Quincy than it was to be in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, the Tea Party was the, you know, here's the brief. I'm sure we've all heard it. We've all watched Schoolhouse Rock. Absolutely. Do you know what I'm saying? We know. But basically, I'm, if you're trying to get me to sing, it's just not happening. <laughs> it's not trying to work. Sorry. Um, so here's a short a short version is the British people were angry at the smugglers, like John Hancock, a friend. 
because it was very American to buy tea that had no, no tax on it on purpose. Mm-hmm. Like, your goal was to go to a tea shop and say, let me have some tea as long as it doesn't have, as long as you haven't paid tax on it. So mm-hmm. if you've paid tax, then let me have some coffee. Right. <laughs> you know, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. You know? And so that was like the famous thing. Well, then the British basically undercut the price of the smugglers. They're like, oh, okay, then we'll just give this one company the monopoly. Mm-hmm. And then they'll be able to undercut your prices. And so you'll have to pay the tax. It was not about money. It was about smacking people in the face with stupid pride things. And so city after city either let the tea rot on the boats. Oh, well then. You know, it wasn't just Boston. Oh, okay. Well, here, let's turn this ship around. Why don't you just go back where you came from? Or they would let it sit there and refuse to unload it. Mm -hmm. But in Boston, you know, the dudes dressed up as, as Native Americans, as we say, and went out and dumped all the tea in the ocean. <laughs> so how about that for tea? now. So Britain decided to blockade Boston until they paid for that tea. Right. The British people were completely surprised that rather than cut it off, I mean, refugees were streaming out. People paid upwards of $40 or 40 pounds. I mean, that was a lot of money. I think uh, multiply it by 33. I'm not going to do it <laughs> you, right now. I, I can't. And you've got about how much money that was. That was a lot to get out of town. I mean, they cracked right. down on everybody. But the thing is... Um, they didn't realize that other colonies would send things overland when they heard of this happening, this blockade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was kind of the beginning of the coalescing of the colonies right. right now. They were so mad. Like, really? Seriously? You're going to starve people out in a town? You're going to really do that? And yeah. so colony after colony sent supplies overland. And that was a very big backfiring type situation. Yeah. So Abigail could see the battle. She could see a battle from the top of her hill. Yeah, her and John Quincy went Mm -hmm. up and watched it. From her house. From her house. Her backyard. I don't know. I mean, I like to go to the fireworks. I know, but that's not... I don't know if I'm taking my nine-year-old son to the top of a hill to watch a battle. It was um, actually the Battle of Charleston, if you're following along with some kind of website of the (laughs) Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. It was the Battle of Charleston is what they watched from the top of their hill. So, after the Boston Tea Party, as you can imagine, hijinks ensue. Yes. Um, Ultimately, the British are defeated, as we all know. Someday, I will get you to sing Uh We the People in order to form... (laughs) Oh, no! So now that I say that, um, you know, you've got your famous years, uh, you know, you've got, you got some, some little pieces of paper yeah, that don't, dock- in fact, have those seals on them right. from the Stamp Act, That's right. by the way. Um, the Declaration of Independence, you know, you got your Constitution. This is, again, John Adams, not Abigail Adams, so we're not going to cover it as thoroughly, but this is when all this situation is happening. Mm-hmm. John Hancock takes up half the paper with his ridiculous signature. And just the writing of the paper. I mean, it's a bunch of guys sitting together talking about each word and each word choice, and it's time-consuming. And while John is doing that, Abigail is not. Abigail's not, but he actually had um, had said many times in his career that there is a woman to whom he owes a great deal of his political acumen. And he actually read out some of her letters during this hammering out of the uh, of the documents. Mm-hmm. He read some of her letters out. And when Abigail heard about that, she was kind of embarrassed because she really didn't mean those for this learned audience. Yeah. And, you know, she always felt a little insecure about the fact that she hadn't had a formal education. But really, I think she had more of an education, perhaps rea- real education. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking papers. Right. Like letters after your name. Right. A real education than over half the men in that room. Right. Who might have a diploma but or a degree, but don't. And smart. And smart. But so he actually did value her input, politically mm-hmm. speaking, during this time. Even though she was at home, he depended on her to tell him the mood of the, 
like, what's the mood? What's the rumor? Right. Tell me what everyone's she saying was, back home. She was the Harris polls or the mm-hmm. the reality of what, how everything was filtering down to, to society. Now, as, I just wonder if she's embarrassed to have these read to this room of men. I wonder how she feels about them ha- being on the Internet. Yeah, she actually asked him to burn her letters, and he never did. Mm-hmm. Burning with, you know, everybody had a fireplace. You, yeah. You're not going to put it in the recycling. You no. just throw it in the fire. But he mm-hmm. never did. He saved them all. And so they're available to us today. And I, I wonder if, I, I know, the content of them probably wouldn't be anywhere near what it is if she had known that Yeah, at this day and age, we history chicks were going to link you up to familytales.org to read all of her letters. <laughs> Mr. John is sent to France. Yes, France, as Britain's traditional enemy, was considered to be our natural ally, at least for a little while. Um, France had its own things getting ready to go on right now, um, as you recall. Mm. But anyway, he's sent to France to negotiate with the people there and is completely out of his depth socially. Oh, absolutely. His mind recoils at the immorality and the bosoms and the, he's not in it. It's a foreign land in every sense of the word. You know, he does, his dress isn't accepted, his his thought process. I mean, he's coming from the land where we need to hammer out a constitution. We need to form a government. We need to be serious now to party. Who could make that adjustment? And he and... I'll tell you who could make it. Benjamin, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin was definitely in his element. Uh, the ladies' man even up there in years. I know. He's a rainy old dude. So John, um, when he goes as ambassador to the Netherlands, takes small John Quincy mm-hmm. with him. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine. I, I do believe the boy was 11. He yep. wasn't that... He was not yep. that old. Nope. Um, but it's time for him to start learning. Mm-hmm. And seeing the world. And I think Abigail wanted that for him. She did. As she hard did. as it would have been to send her, her son off with her husband, at least they, they were together. You know, I, I believe that they were intended, they originally wanted to go as a family, but it wasn't possible. John just took John Quincy and off they went for a very scary passage. Yeah, they did. They go. They went for a very scary passage, and when they, they got there, John Quincy, at not much older than 14, was actually sent on further to mm-hmm. Russia mm-hmm. to be an interpreter for the ambassador there. Because he could speak French. Mm-hmm. Which, we go French, Russia, what? <laughs> well, French is well, the language of yes. diplomacy through pretty much all mm-hmm. this whole period, um, similar to the way English right. is today. It's, right. just, it's just the lingua franca that everyone speaks. Yes. You like that? That was so Latin up in here. I don't have a specific hand gesture Latin for Latin. Beckett. So this time he's gone for five years. Five years. Five years. Really, the communication is not what it could be. The letters take an exceedingly long time. Right. Um, and and many he's are, busy. He is busy. He's not very good at writing anyway. Um, there was a chart message that she, she sent him that basically said, I'm entitled to more expressions of devotion than what I'm getting mm-hmm. right now. Sure. So she did complain. Now, once upon a time, she called herself Diana when she was writing her letters, and now, when she signed her letters, she called herself Portia. And if you recall your Shakespeare, in The Merchant of Venice, Portia was the lawyer that was very smart and mm-hmm. got uh, someone off on a technicality. 
It comes down to the fact that they can no longer stand to be separated anymore. The point is, she wants him to come home. She mm-hmm. wants him to come home. She'd prefer that he come home, and he's not going to do it. No. He he is now the ambassador to England, of course, um, and he's in the English court of St. James, um, and he, he wants her to come to him, and she doesn't really want to go. Because she's, she's afraid of the traveling. She's mm. afraid. He often said that there's no place for a woman on board a boat. But she was going to have to go without a male escort. Mm-hmm. Which was kind of unheard of. And she was not that excited about that. And she took Nabby with her. That's her daughter. That's her daughter. Who was very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Remarked upon you. Oh, yes. Yes. She took her daughter with her as a companion. And also to break her off from an unsuitable um, first romance that she had with kind of a reformed rake. Mm-hmm. I don't think rakes ever get reformed, really. No. So anyway, that was a twofold situation. She determined to go. She got her tickets. She got her passage. She was packed. She had to dispose of the farm by herself. And here's her husband writing letter after letter. Hello, I'm waiting for you. I expect you every day, and I discover you haven't even left yet. What's the deal with that? And here she's wrapping things up. He has right. no conception. Drop having, everything, honey, and come yeah. on this having, what is it, six-week voyage. Been <laughs> gone for 17 years. Yeah. He really had no conception of what it took. And even the sons, she had to, you know, make sure that their education was taken care of. She did feel secure that they were with her sisters. So right. that was one measure of comfort. Mm-hmm. And, and she finally got a good family. She considered a good family to take over the farm while they were gone, mm-hmm. which was a big responsibility, I think. Absolutely. And and here's a little measure of her character. She gets on the boat and it is dirty and she's and she was offended that in order to breathe at all she had to leave her door open while she was sleeping. And here's men in the next room. She's oh and so basically after about a week of enduring this dirt and this language or whatever, she told the captain she was gonna take care of things and she arranged cleaning crews among the <laughs> people that didn't work for her. Uh-huh. I mean, these are the soldiers. How could you not love that? And, and the sailors who are, you know, I'm going to lounge around. Oh, no, it was ship and shape. Yeah. And she went down into that kitchen. She sure did. And she taught him how to make an acceptable cornmeal pudding <laughs> with the proper amount of molasses on it. Oh, yes, she did. So she has been accustomed to micromanaging. And yes. she took control of this situation. Well, good. And, yeah. It needed a woman's time. There's the character picture for her right there. That is, absolutely. Now, when she got to Europe, she was, had another bit of a culture shock. Yeah. She was puritanical and, mm-hmm. you know. Like, she was appalled at the amount of time and effort it took to get herself and Nabby ready to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. She was just appalled at how long it took. The amount of feathers and any number of things. She was presented to the queen and she thought it was so ridiculous that her hat had feathers that were so tall she couldn't sit properly in the carriage. So she here she is, like with bending her head and her dress was getting all messed in the carriage and then when she finally got to be presented, they were very haughty to her and very irritated. And here she is thinking, Look, I just spent seven hours getting this crap on and you're going to give me 30 seconds of an eyeball she was very offended she was not yeah. very a pleased deeper woman than than that with way. that situation yeah. at all oh absolutely oh, do you blame her well and in america the frank and forthright personality was um highly regarded but mm-hmm. it, among the diplomatic circles of england and france the frank and forthright personality especially a woman not so well no. thought of at all and uh, my john adams several times had to tell her basically to mind her tongue he had to mind his own tongue frankly 
But he had learned it by then. But he had learned it by then. Right. But yeah, she she had a little bit of sauce to her that wasn't going over very well. It was just a very awkward period of time. And she, at this point, had said that she found her hens and chickens back at the far more amiable company than anyone she'd <laughs> ever met at the court of St. James. So how about that? Yeah. yeah. She dismissed the entirety of European civilization by commenting yeah. that they were worse than chickens. <laughs> nice. So that's where her point is. Now, as much as she tried not to get sucked in, as much as she tried not to get mm-hmm. sucked in, the ambassador had a big house mm-hmm. and made even bigger. And the clothing was fancier than she had been accustomed to. The food was fancier than she'd mm-hmm. been accustomed to. She had a servant problem that she had to deal with that she never had to deal with before. She always complained that her servants didn't do half the work that an American servant would do. And she was always very chauvinistic mm-hmm. about American servants are so much better. Because in, in Britain, servants did a certain amount of things and then they didn't do. Like if you wanted something brought to you, you would tell the butler, who would tell the footman, who would tell the kitchen <laughs> guy to put water in right. the thing where the footman will bring it back. And it was not, you didn't just tell the nearest person who worked for you to go get you some whatever. Right. <laughs> and so she actually did kind of get accustomed to the high life a little bit. Because when she came back to America, after all this was over, this house that she had thought was so big and fancy and everything, when she got there, she realized, what? what? This is and not. And it was not at no. all what she thought she was uh, mm-hmm. entitled to. Mm-hmm. So she's back in the States and the kids are all grown up. They are. What happens when you leave for years and years and years? I can't imagine. Her kids have grown up without her. I mean, even John Quincy has been gone elsewhere, not at home. Nabby's the only one she's seen, mm-hmm. really. I just think that's kind of heartbreaking. They grew yeah. up without... They, now, their aunt loved them. Their uncle loved them. They mm-hmm. gave them a very good upbringing, but their parents were not around. No. For Charles and Thomas, <sighs> at yes. the very least. Yes, and... Those are the two that suffer most later in life. I do. I I do think they needed a little more, more structure, a perhaps. little more parental involvement. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So here we are at around 1789, and um, the French Revolution is getting ready to to go. The Americas um, elect a president unanimously. George mm-hmm. Washington. General of the Revolutionary War. There is no dissent. He is a very popular figure. Very, very striking figure. He's very tall. John Adams often compared himself unfavorably to people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. He always compared himself physically. Physically, well. Yeah, and they were really good public speakers. We've and, compared him physically right here and now. I mean, John Adams wasn't exactly a, a looker. <laughs> So John Adams and Abigail Adams kind of became what people termed the party of two. Like they had these ideas about how things should be and mm-hmm. not a whole lot of people kind of lined mm-hmm. up with them. John Adams became vice president um, and he often complained about how ridiculous of a job that was. He, yeah. could, he could do nothing but observe and be in the Senate as a tiebreaker and he was not even allowed to debate. If, oh. if there was a vote and it was a tie, he could then, yeah. he, then he got to do something. But otherwise... But Washington didn't, didn't include him in, mm-hmm. in meetings and... It was, he felt it was what beneath him, the, mm-hmm. the responsibilities of the job, and it wasn't a challenge at all. And he would often get up and yell at everyone, I will tell you. <laughs> but you know, he just couldn't take it anymore. Like, he would yell at them about how stupid they were being or whatever. That's just part of Abigail and John's way of being. Right. We gotta admire people yeah. in some regards that speak their mind and want to keep to the task at hand and and use their brains and call people out who don't. <laughs> you can admire them a little bit, but a little tact yep. would go a long way. 
So John, as vice president, actually, and, and Abigail had to find their own housing and pay for their own housing. This was not a thing that the government paid for. Right. She had to hire some more servants when she was the vice president's lady. And much to her surprise, American servants didn't live up to what she remembered them being. And now she complains that they're always drunk. She just can't win with the servant problem. No. She's never happy. No. Oh, and I didn't even mention that when Abigail was growing up, there were two slaves in her house. Uh, oh. Phoebe was the kitchen lady. Mm-hmm. Well, started out girl, but stayed with the family so long. She was the lady at the end. And then there was a man named Tom. So even people we think of as founding fathers, northern founding mm-hmm. fathers. Right. They, so anyway, Abigail Adams' family did have slaves. But John Adams didn't own any, but... Abigail did back in the day. So anyway, with all these drunk servants, um, she was expected to have a level of diplomatic, diplomatic entertaining. And she actually kept track and like cycled through people, checked them off. Like, thank goodness they checked off. She really didn't. And she didn't have the budget for it either. And here's Mrs. Washington. George Washington's wife with Martha. And they had a lot more disposable income than the Adamses did. And they were quite willing to use it Mm -hmm. to give lavish dinners. And George Washington's birthday was a big party. A big party. To which John Adams was invited after he was president. Hell, really? I'm the president and you are going to invite me to John or George Washington's birthday as a citizen? Yeah, no, he didn't want to go. So ultimately, ultimately he was elected as our second president. Although that was not a foregone conclusion, Abigail and John Adams thought that it was, it should be because he was in the next in line of succession. What does that sound like? Sounds like like the old monarchy and... It does. And Abigail... Which they were trying to get away from. Which which they were trying to get away from. And this is where Abigail and John, um, in their writings to each other, were talking about how most people, in fact, weren't fit to be a part of the government. And and Abigail thought that there were people destined to be governed and people destined to govern. And that's just human nature, which is so bizarre. So you start to realize that all this fighting for them on the Revolutionary War was actually a regime change thing and not a social change thing. Does that make sense? Sort of. So they were fighting against British rule rather than for a democratic... Right. Yeah. So they were fighting more for our republic, meaning, you know, we'll elect some smart guys, too. And that's kind of still... That's still what we have today. We don't have a pure democracy, which would mean that everybody has a direct vote, which is not exactly Mm -hmm. what happens. So we still do have a republic, and that was um, what they advocated. But it's kind of startling to me to realize that they didn't really have this whole democratic principle at heart. No. Especially not about... When you think about... Yeah. Yeah. So John Adams becomes president. It didn't necessarily go so well for him at first. He's he uh got he was the butt of some jokes in the public press, mm-hmm. um, the political cartoons and things. And Abigail is very thin skinned, and even more thin skinned for him because in the time you as a woman got your status and your achievements through your husband's husband. achievements, mm-hmm. and anything said against him would just rile her. I mean, it would rile her to the point where you're like, bring it down, girl. It's just a cartoon. <laughs> but no, I mean, she would write angry letters to editors and place letters in newspapers Mm -hmm. telling people this is what you need, you know, cut this out so nobody could tell where it comes from, these words here, but you need to put this in their paper, and they did. And then there was was a series of legislation called the Alien and Sedition Acts, which basically made it illegal to say anything bad against the government, and Abigail was all behind it. Of course she was. (laughs) And so was John Adams. It's very controversial like that. It's she basically advocated censorship and she advocated Shocking. the booting out of the country of 
anyone uh, from other countries that felt like they needed to criticize Americans. Get them out. Send them on a boat. All these people who'd fled the French Revolution and come to the United States. Uh -huh. She's like, you know what? If you sauce us, you're going back. Which is kind of ironic considering that that's, they sauced Britain. Yeah. So that's what... And they started to. Yeah. John Adams and Abigail Adams started the Party of Two. Started... <laughs> Adam's party to be very disturbed by what they were seeing after the French Revolution, which started out so promisingly, mm -hmm. but you know, they disapproved, as I do, of the treatment of the king and queen. They disapproved of the methodology that happened. They disapproved of what they saw as lawlessness going on in the wake of that. They didn't, they didn't like the precedent that it was setting. Because here, America was pretty new, and this mm -hmm. was only the second president, and it still could go wrong very oh, easily. easily. And they didn't like the precedent that was setting for mob rule, for lack of respect for any authority figure mm -hmm. or whatever, and they thought it was a very dangerous precedent. And so there were a lot of people in America that were starting to think that maybe France wasn't a very good ally and that they should be British allies again. Yes. <laughs> oh, um, here's an idea. The Adamses weren't particularly in that camp either. Abigail, in particular, thought America should just stay to America and deal with American problems with no allies mm -hmm. and be a little bit isolationist. But then John Adams went and um, he sent a French ambassador to France, and his opponents were gleeful, thinking that was going to crack his presidency. And in mm -hmm. fact, it kind of did. It, he didn't get reelected. No. One term and done. He didn't get reelected. And um, in fact, Thomas Jefferson did get elected and that was kind of their old friend and rival like right. their frenemy frenemy yeah they yeah john and thomas had quite a, a lifelong relationship john adams and he fell out rather severely there were lots of things written about john adams that thomas didn't defend him mm -hmm. and they were just they became polar opposites after the war right it was a, it was a dark time in their friendship although they, later in life they would rekindle that uh, i did want to point out that abigail was the first First Lady, although that term wasn't used yet, to live in the White House. The White House was, was being built, and she moved in there only for a few months, and it wasn't complete, and it, and very, you know, they're building around her. She used to hang her time. laundry in the East Wing. <laughs> right. Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah, to dry. It, is, it is, and you know, the, it was muddy, and land, she said that the land was beautiful, but the house was not complete. And she was also um, complaining in letters to her friends about the work-to-watch ratio. Work <laughs> like, to watch 12 ratio. guys would fill wheelbarrows, mm -hmm. these four wheelbarrows, and then mm -hmm. the four wheelbarrows would trudge away with the four workers, and the other eight guys would lean on their shovels until the empty wheelbarrows came back. Back. Well, what else could they do? No. <laughs> so she's like, no wonder it's going kind of slowly. This is ridiculous. And if she could have taken control of that situation. Yeah, like she had on the, on the ship, she might have got things ship shape again. I will tell but. you one funny thing about that French ambassadorship. Mm -hmm. It was said in the popular press that if the old lady had been here, this never would have happened. <laughs> and then she kind of jokingly wrote, actually, this old lady would have probably done the same thing. And I advised him to do it in the first place. So the old lady yeah, wasn't as no. anti-French as they thought she was. But no. yeah, that's funny because everyone kind of thought she was the brains behind the dude. Or at least... The lovers mm -hmm. behind the dude. Well, support. I mean, as mm -hmm. a wife, you should be supportive of your husband, but, and they were. I really equal. think that is a testament to her intellectual prowess, though, that men, uh, statesmen, were right. willing to admit, like, well, acknowledge it. They, I think to insult her in that way, they had to have respected her at least somewhat. Don't Wait, you think? Yeah, I think. I yeah. mean, they had to know that she was capable of. Ultimately, he's defeated. 
and they move. They move back into their house that they built called Peacefield. Peacefield. It's I in Massachusetts. That. I love it. It's beautiful. And you can actually, it's actually part of the Adams Historic, the Adams National Historic Park. It's outside of Boston and you can still go there and nice and see it. Beautiful. I, I'm from New England. So I, you know, I, I know what the houses look like. I know what the gardens look like. It looks homey to me. I think this was a so. very good time in her life because really she had grandchildren living mm-hmm. with her at this time. I mean, her Children were in and out of the house. She had a very busy mm-hmm. establishment, and she liked it. Yes. She was not lonesome. She not had so many members of her family. She had little grandsons that would hardly even stay at their house. They would, like, get up and run to Graham's house. Mm-hmm. And she wrote that she to her friends that she was starting to feel like maybe grandparents aren't fit to raise children because she was very indulgent. <laughs> very so even now, she's doubting her parenting skills, like these grandkids. <laughs> her kids, they're the grandkids parents, uh, Abigail, um, she actually marries her father's secretary, Colonel William Stephen Smith. Now, uh, while he was a good secretary to her father, he was not very good with money, and he lost a lot of it. He he wanted to get rich quick, and he lost a lot of it in schemes, although he does have a spotty political career. Eventually, because of his scheming, he does get stripped of his his uh, credentials, and, and he's no longer, he does no longer have the backing of the U.S. government, unlike in the the miniseries, I, I hate to keep referring to it, but it is such a great way to see life at that time. I mean, the story, and you can see the area and the world around them, how it looked. And I think that's pretty interesting. But unlike the movie um, where Nabby moves in with her mother and stuff, the family actually stayed together. Nabby stayed with Colonel William Stephen Smith, four children and three survived. They actually moved to upstate New York, but the marriage is not good. And 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 Abigail actually talks to her about divorce, which is not heard of at the time because it's such a it's not such a great environment. Unfortunately, um, she does die at a fairly young age, at forty eight, um, of breast cancer. So now. There's two children that Abigail must... Yeah, and she actually educated those children, too. Mm -hmm. She kind of took over a surrogate parent. Now, William Smith did come back and take his children Mm -hmm. at some point, and Abigail really mourned their loss. I mean, respecting their right, his right to take them as as his, their father, but really thought he was completely unfit. And, and he, he was, as far as I have read, he was very unfit to be a father, but... So, Nabby, the daughter, is actually a pretty stand-up person. So, she, as, as an adult, we're going to give her a plus sign. Yeah. Because she's, she's, she's a good person. John Quincy. Now, he, now remember, John Quincy got thrown in at 11 into the diplomatic circles of Europe. So, here he is observing at 11. Now, at 14, he goes off by himself mm-hmm. as an interpreter for another diplomatic man. Uh, and at 17, you know, he meets his parents back in Europe, and he's polished. Mm-hmm. He, sure. He is a polished man. He actually ends up with a European wife mm-hmm. who, who, whose name is Louisa, who had a little bit of a rough time with Abigail <laughs> because Louisa didn't know what was going on in her kitchen. Louisa had fine manners and fine clothes and et cetera. And Abigail was like, but can you milk a cow? It's very- no. It goes back to, you know, what, what you had said earlier about the women were expected to know how to do everything, even if they had servants. Uh, John Quincy chose wisely and has a, a very successful political career culminating in the sixth presidency of the United States. When Louisa was the president's wife, 
which now they were called the first ladies, but that's for another podcast. Um, so when Louisa was the first lady, she asked actually John Adams, okay, I, all this entertaining is just killing me. What, what mm-hmm. is going on? All mm-hmm. this entertainment is just killing me. And, and the answer back was actually, I'm sorry. If you'd followed Thomas Jefferson, who was a bachelor <laughs> and was very slack and whatever, mm-hmm. you would have been fine. Right. But as you're following Dolly Madison, the mm-hmm. most famous hostess from here to there, right. you are going to have to up your game. That's right. <laughs> and entertain like the Dickens. And so she followed. She got along so well with John Adams. Mm-hmm. She and Abigail had a rocky relationship. You know, mothers and sons. No one's ever good enough. No. Of course not. But John John Adams had seen very accomplished women in Europe, and he mm-hmm. was very confident that his son had made the he right choice. And in fact, yeah, she took care of him when he was a very old man. Yes. After Abigail died. So let's mm-hmm. give John Quincy and, by extension, his wife, yes. Louisa. Two thumbs up. Two Plus thumbs signs. Up. Okay, now Charles. let's go to the rest of them. Charles... He lives a kind of a drunken life. He's he's a wild card. He was always handsome. He was always a ladies' man. He wanted it easy, unfortunately. He had some financial reverses, and he turned yeah. into a complete wastrel. I think he broke his mother's heart over and over. And in the mm-hmm. back of my mind, and I'm reading this about Charles, I think, you know, I bet you anything Abigail's blaming herself. Of course. Well, no, she wasn't even there. Well, there so how is she blaming your, herself? But you're... Your, their parenting. The rationalist theory rationalist of parenting. Theory. Par- yeah, she is it's, responsible. Yeah, so according to her own philosophy of upbringing, it's her fault that Charles ended up that way. I do think it's just a roll of the dice Yeah. in this case, but she did leave him when he was a young boy. Right. But that said... He does get married, and he does have two daughters, and he does uh, drink himself into congestive heart failure at a very young age, so that's another child that yeah. they must say... Goodbye to. And finally, Thomas Boylston, neglected by his father. I mean, most of his life, the father is gone. I don't think he even knew his father, really, Mm -hmm. other than this man that came and everything was bustly when this Mm -hmm. man came. Right. I think that's about how he viewed his father. Ooh, excitement, excitement. The house got cleaned because this man came. Everyone was on their best behavior Mm -hmm. and woohoo. That's a good way to describe it. Bustly. Bustly. He follows family tradition, goes to Harvard. He serves as secretary under his brother, John Quincy. Um, and he does have a legal career in Massachusetts and Philadelphia. It's not exactly the most successful of careers. And he's not exactly the son that I think John or Abigail would have wanted him to be or hoped for him. Now, in his defense, though. Yes. In his defense, he moves back to Quincy mm-hmm. with his family. Yes. And they, you know, the children become close to their grandpa. Right. So. He does move back as a, as a responsible mm-hmm. son and take care of his father in his old age, too. Right. So, so in his defense, he strays. He comes back. Yeah. He's not, like, so upstanding, but he doesn't abandon anybody. No, no. Or go off the no, rails or whatever. No, no, no. no. And, and, so, and upon his mother's death, he's he's there for his dad. and yeah. With his seven children. <laughs> with his seven children. That's right. Yeah. Abigail gets, t- I want to say, typhoid fever. Typhoid fever. At the age of 74, Mm -hmm. the thing about her having, as she did die relatively suddenly, it kind of came on all of a sudden. The one good thing about her is she had the majority of her family around her, which Mm -hmm. was very um, gratifying to her. And that she had seen John Quincy, she was fearing she'd never see again. Mm -hmm. She actually wrote in many, many letters, I fear I'll never see my child again. I'm going to die before I see him again. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know. But she did. She she did. Her family was there. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So it was as and good as anything. They were could. a peace field, and yeah. and it was fairly quick. Her and John had been married for fifty four years. That's amazing. And then the the number of letters that survive as no one burnt them as mm-hmm. they were supposed to is upward. I mean, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of letters, mm-hmm. and it will give you a great intimate portrait of the time. Really, right. I mean, there's political things in there. There's definitely personal things in there. Some of which probably ought to have been burnt about the magnets drawing to the metal and. <laughs> I don't know about all those naughty letters. And you can actually draw your own conclusion about how much of a feminist Abigail Adams really was. And speaking of Abigail Adams' legacy, you may have noticed a glaring omission in our podcast today, and that would be the famous Remember the Ladies letter that she sent to her husband, John Adams, when he and the other men that were writing all the documents of our new nation to admonish them not to forget the women of the country when they were talking about freedom and equality. And we decided that we were going to pull out all of the discussions about feminism and influence and put them in a separate mini cast. So we will produce that and get it out to you next week. We certainly haven't forgotten it. It's the thing most people know about Abigail Adams, and so we wanted to give it the respect it was due. For show notes and links to the things we talked about today, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at The History Chicks with, with an, an X. X. Or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. The music in our podcast comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. <laughs>